This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 287th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a tiny little sauropod baby. No. And what we can tell about how it was growing and an update on the dueling dinosaurs, the really famous legal dispute that's going on with some amazing fossils in Montana. We also have an interview with Steve Porpat and Adele Pentland about their latest Australian discovery, which is the first Alaphrosaurine bone ever found on the continent. It's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Calovasaurus. But really quick, as we always like to do, we want to thank some of our patrons for helping to keep the podcast running for all these years. And this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Cavanaugh, the Tolbert family, Remy Rodriguez, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Avery, Albertosaurus, Trev, Ayrton and Everett, Greg, Jared Copeland, Leah, Bill Jago, and Argentrinosaurus. Yeah, thank you so much. We've gotten a lot of new patrons lately, which has been really great to see, and we're getting close. We're only seven people away from our goal, and then we'll be sending out some art. Yeah, Sabrina's art, in fact. And I think it is amazing. We should probably release it soon. I'm thinking we'll post a low-res version in a, when we get a couple more patrons <laughs> so that everybody can get a tease for what it looks like before we mail it out to all of our patrons. And a good reminder to keep your address updated in Patreon if you want to get physical rewards shipped to you like this art, because I know a lot of people joined before we were sending stuff out, so they might not have their address in there. And we don't really have a way of getting addresses from everybody. So just make sure it's up to date in there in your shipping address, not the billing address, because we can't see your billing address. We need to see the shipping address for shipping. Yes. And if you're curious what this mystery art is, again, it's inspired by Planet Earth 2, and it has to do with birds. We saw it pop up in another dinosaur documentary recently, too. <laughs> the same event that this is based on. That it was inspired by, anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is pretty cool. And of course, you can sign up and update your address and all that stuff at patreon.com slash inodino. And now jumping into the news, as promised, our first article is about baby dinosaurs. And these are really, I don't even know if it's fair to call them baby dinosaurs. They're like dinosaur embryos. They're so tiny and early. <laughs> I couldn't find an estimate on the exact age of them, but you know, dinosaurs weren't in eggs for all that long. So <laughs> they're very young, <laughs> months old for sure. They hadn't even hatched. Yeah. So maybe negative days old. I don't know how you count these things. So not quite a baby dinosaur. Yeah. 
So this article was written by Robert Reese and others and published in Nature Communications, and it's about a baby Lufungosaurus. Lufungosaurus is very common in Asia. It's a sauropodomorph. We saw one mounted at the Hong Kong Science Museum, which is pretty cool to see. It's one of the only ones that's outside of China. I think there might be another one in Taiwan or Korea or something like that, but most of them are in China in tons of museums all over the place. So if you've ever been to a museum in China, there's a good chance you've seen Lufungosaurus. Since it's a sauropodomorph, it is not huge like a diplodocoid. It is only about six to nine meters or 20 to 30 feet long, depending on the species and if you lump them together or not when they were fully grown. And they're from the early Jurassic, like most things that we call sauropodomorphs. So it's like 190 million years old-ish. So maybe about 40 million years older than when the really big sauropods started showing up in places like the Morrison Formation in the U.S. So the bones in this paper, unlike the feet to meter long bones in other sauropods, are measured in millimeters hmm. or, you know, what is that, 20 fifths of an inch? <laughs> Very small, little tiny bones. And in this paper, they focused on the skull and the teeth that are embedded in the dentary or the jaw. And in this one dentary, which is just one half of the jaw, they saw it had at least nine tooth positions, which means that when it hatched, it would have basically had as many functional teeth as humans do as adults Wow! <laughs> after just a few months of development. Even crazier is that each of these tooth positions had multiple teeth in development because we all know that dinosaurs replaced their teeth multiple times throughout their life. Some of them were as frequent as just like every month, especially in sauropods. They tended to replace them very rapidly. So this one was already queued up with a functional tooth and a couple teeth behind it, <laughs> ready to jump in once that tooth was wearing out. And this dinosaur hadn't even hatched yet. The weirdest thing, though, and the coolest thing, because it's always great in science when you find something that's unexpected because it opens up a whole new world of possibilities and questions to look into, is that the teeth that are in this baby Lufungosaurus are totally different than what you see in adult Lufungosaurus. We talk a little bit about that later in our interview with Lemusaurus and how it was like toothless as an adult. It's not quite that weird, but basically as this hatchling or pre-hatchling embryonic Lufungosaurus, it had pencil-shaped teeth like we talk about in later sauropods like Diplodocus. But adult Lufungosaurus have serrated teeth <laughs> that are maybe more like something you'd see in an ornithischian or in like an ankylosaur or something with those like leaf-shaped serrated teeth. So obviously that was pretty surprising <laughs> to researchers to find these other teeth. I wonder why it changes. Yeah. So they, they get into some guesses about that. But I should point out another difference about the teeth, too, is that the teeth in baby Lufungosaurus are replaced kind of from the inside of the mouth outwards towards the lips. They press up and out as they replace. They don't just replace straight up or from below the teeth like they do in our mouth and like they do in an adult Lufungosaurus. And this weird towards the lip replacement is what you also see in later sauropods like Diplodocus. So it's like its mouth and its teeth are a lot like these later sauropods, which weren't around for another 40 million years, <laughs> but not like the adult that it evolves or grows into. Wow, that's weird. It's super weird. But it's not completely unheard of because one day old alligators also have this same weird tooth sort of sliding out 
thing that happens. And they have that when they're young. They grow from the inside towards the lips. And in those baby alligator teeth, they aren't really anchored to the jaw, but the adult teeth are. And then once they have those like well-developed roots, they start to replace more like how our teeth do and like the adult Lufungosaurus does. So there is some similarity to a dinosaur relative that we can see today, which is obviously very helpful for researchers. I'm continually very glad that alligators and crocodilians in general did not go extinct at the end Cretaceous because we have the birds that are the direct ancestors of dinosaurs, but they're so not typical dinosaur-like. You know, they're just like this one very specific flying feathered weirdo that's not like most dinosaurs. But the fact that we still have alligators that we can compare to is super helpful because birds don't have teeth, for example, so there'd be nothing you could do for a living analog. Well, alligators and crocodiles are weird in their own right, so... They are. That's true. But getting back to the shape of the teeth... Like you were mentioning how weird it is that they changed from pencil shape to serrated as they grew up. So the researchers proposed that the way that might have happened, that these dinosaurs 40 million years later ended up having teeth that are similar to these baby Lufungosaurus, actually it has a name <laughs> and it's pedomorphosis. And pedomorphosis is just when adults hang on to juvenile or embryonic features that you see sometimes in ancestors like way back in evolutionary history it's something that happens actually fairly often and we've talked about it before with dinosaurs and how you can kind of switch on and off genes and by doing so you can tap into this kind of repertoire of capabilities that are in the dna of the dinosaur by it's kind of easier basically to use a trait that is in your family tree than having to randomly evolve it later so it turns out that both titanosaurs and diplodocids may have gotten this pencil-shaped teeth and the replacement style that they have by keeping on to the embryonic-style teeth that these early sauropodomorphs had, like Lufungosaurus. And it also helps to explain why titanosaurs and diplodocids, which aren't really close relatives, both inherited that trait, because otherwise they would have had to somehow coincidentally evolve it on their own. But since there's this juvenile going way back in the family tree that had the characteristic, it's likely that they both inherited some of that genetic material and they can kind of fall back to that trait. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's also kind of a good example of why you might want to slice into a fossil because <laughs> even though they did a CT scan and they could see some of the details about what the teeth looked like in the jaw, it wasn't until they sliced into it that they could really get a lot of information on how the teeth were replacing and you could see the exact shape of them. The pictures in this paper are cool. Be interesting to see if we can find more examples of this in dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. One that came to my mind is feathers, because say you've got like Eutyrannus, if there are other Tyrannosaurs that predate it that didn't have feathers as adults, and then Eutyrannus, obviously the juvenile Tyrannosaurs and a lot of juvenile dinosaurs we think probably had some downy fuzz, and then it held on to it into adulthood is an example of that pedomorphosis. Yeah, that would make sense. It would make sense that this isn't the only case. Yeah. I think it is one of those things where it's like easy to, for evolution to take that sort of tact. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier than coming up with a whole new thing, just taking advantage of something that's already in the code. In other news, on May 20th, Montana Supreme Court answered the question about whether dinosaur fossils are considered minerals or not. And they ruled four to three in the dueling dinosaurs case that Dinosaur fossils are not minerals. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> 
So to recap this case, and I went through the uh, opinions of the case and read all the legal briefs. That was interesting. (laughs) Yeah, we had to dig and find like, what's the Montana Supreme Court website? How do we get their actual brief on this? Because news agencies reported on it, but obviously it didn't have enough detail for us. (laughs) (laughs) So to recap, in 1983, Lesia Mary Ann Murray leased the land of a farm and a ranch in Garfield County from George Severson. And then in 2005, the Murrays purchased the surface estate of the land and kept ranching and farming. And they also got one third of the mineral rights. So George had transferred his parts of the interest in the property to his sons, Jerry and Robert. And so the two brothers owned the other two thirds of the mineral rights of this property. And to recap really quickly, surface rights is obviously useful to the people that are using it as a ranch because it basically means you can use the land, the surface of the land, (laughs) thus the name, to do whatever you want. You could build things on it. You could grow things on it. You could have your cattle on it, whatever you want to do. But it also means that you can dig into it. It doesn't just mean that you can only do stuff on the surface. It just means basically everything other than mineral rights Mineral rights basically means if you find some valuable mineral under the ground, then then you get to own it. So like if you dig down and oil starts squirting out of it, you don't own the oil, but you could still dig down in other spots and do other surface rights stuff. <laughs> you just don't get to own and sell the oil or the gold or whatever other minerals might be down there. And so the question that was presented was basically, is a fossil that pops up out of the ground because that's really how you find them a mineral or is it? just a non-mineral, which makes it part of the surface rights. And a lot of people were arguing that it should be a mineral because fossils are mineralized, but other people are saying, well, it's not a mineral like oil or gold where the value comes from the fact that it's a mineral. It's a different kind of thing. So it should be part of the surface rights. And most paleontologists, I would say, wanted it to be considered not a mineral and part of the surface rights because usually mineral rights are sold to big companies, which are a little bit harder to deal with and harder to get donations from than people that own the surface rights, at least from the people we've talked to. Right. And I think another aspect of the argument, too, is that dinosaur fossils can be very valuable like other minerals. Mm -hmm. But they're not valuable because they're minerals. (laughs) They're valuable because they were an animal. So from 1991 to mid-2005, the Murrays ran the property as partners with the Seversons. And then the Murrays found the dueling dinosaurs in 2006, along with a Triceratops foot in 2007, which they sold for $20,000, a Triceratops skull in 2011, and a T-Rex in 2013. And that T-Rex sold for millions to a Dutch museum in 2014. But until this whole thing is resolved, all the funds are held in escrow. So in 2013, the Seversons claimed that they owned a portion of the fossils because they're saying we have two-thirds of the mineral rights. And they said that the Murrays didn't tell them about the fossil discoveries until 2008. And the Murrays, who again own all the surface rights, sought a court order from Montana that said, no, they own the fossils. In 2014, the Seversons then sought an order that the fossils were minerals and that they owned partial rights. And for the Murrays to give an account of all the fossils they found and any contracts, expenses, and profits from these fossils. The court ruled that the fossils were not minerals and that the Murrays owned all the rights. So the Seversons appealed, and the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on a three-judge panel overturned the Montana ruling by 2-1 to one in February of 2018, and that meant that the Seversons partially owned the fossils because they had two-thirds of the mineral rights. The Murrays then asked for a rehearing with a larger panel, 
And the Ninth Circuit said yes, but then they first sent the case back to the Montana Supreme Court to determine if, under Montana law, dinosaur fossils were considered to be minerals. So now that the Montana Supreme Court has made their decision, the case is going back to the Ninth Circuit for a rehearing. So it sounds like we're getting to the end. No date on that has been set yet. And as a quick reminder, in 2019, because of this ongoing battle, I believe it was because of this battle. Yeah, I think so too. The legislature unanimously passed a bill that said dinosaur fossils were not considered to be minerals in Montana unless there's a contract that says otherwise. Although that bill wasn't directly a part of this case. Yeah, because it was passed after the fighting was already going on. (laughs) So you can't pass a law after the fact and then apply it retroactively. But it's possible that this law passing had some influence on the case. And I think it makes the most sense in this interpretation because mineral rights are basically a way of signing over part of your rights of the land. And essentially the contract they signed says something to the effect of, if we find oil or gold or iron or other minerals on the site, we don't own the rights to them and somebody else can excavate them and make the money from them. So the argument was basically, this isn't the kind of thing that is going to turn into a giant mine and there's huge value in the mineral. It's just like there's a few bones that experts have to (laughs) painstakingly take out and prepare because it's not just like a, a typical mineral excavation. So it all hinged on that. What are other minerals <laughs> in there? So I'd just be willing to bet that in the future, people are just going to write if there's gold, oil, iron, dinosaur fossils, <laughs> or other minerals <laughs> rather than say, you know, leaving it out. So I think it'll just be more explicit in contracts in the future. The whole problem was that the contract didn't include fossils in the first place. So speaking of laws, or actually, this one's more of a code. But in the UK on the Jurassic Coast, and that includes where Mary Anning found the first full ichthyosaur in England in 1836, there is a new fossil collecting code. And that means that anyone who digs or looks for fossils in the cliff and doesn't record what they found may be thought to be stealing. Hmm. So legally, whoever owns the land owns the fossils, but landowners have agreed on this new code. And that's part of a new Jurassic Coast partnership plan. The idea is that people can collect fossils to save them from being destroyed by the sea because many collectors look for fossils after storms and landslides because they are easier to find. And to promote responsible, safe fossil collecting and avoid excessive digging. And this will help make ownership clear and also promote museum collections to acquire important finds. And this means fossils that are important are considered Category 1 fossils, so they must be recorded at Charmouth Heritage Coast Center. And for those who want to sell the fossils, they must offer them to UK-registered museums for six months first, and then to relevant museums around the world for six months after that. Before being able to sell them to private collectors? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm assuming if it's a very valuable fossil, waiting for a year to sell it might not be that big of a deterrent. (laughs) Yeah. Considering we've seen people say, if I have to wait a few years to sell this for millions of dollars, I'm fine with that. Well, look how long the dueling dinosaurs has been in escrow. (laughs) That's true. Moving on to Mary Anning, her biopic, Ammonite, has been delayed now due to COVID-19. And this is the one that stars Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan. And it will show a fictional relationship between Mary Anning and Frances Bell. And apparently they filmed a lot of the scenes in March in Lyme Regis already. Nice. I guess they're not done shooting. Yeah. Because if they're done shooting, just get busy editing. (laughs) (laughs) 
There might be more to it than that, but yeah. <laughs> I want to see Kate Winslet portraying Marianne. That sounds awesome. Yeah. In St. George, Utah, dinosaur discover site at Johnson Farm reopened recently, but with limited hours and then special hours for high-risk individuals. They also have additional guidelines, such as wearing a mask inside the building and practicing social distancing and making sure to wash your hands often. And the museum is also working on expansion plans, though it's anticipated to take 20 years to complete, depending on fundraising. Yeah, it's mostly because of fundraising. That's quite the expansion plan. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a few other places we've heard of that have reopened recently with new guidelines. Yeah, some obviously are easier to do, especially if they're outdoors. Like I think the Australian Age of Dinosaurs might be an easier one because there's a lot of outdoor action going on. But some of the ones like American Museum of Natural History that brings huge crowds and it's all indoors could be a little while longer. Although not everybody waits Thanks to Richard and Spinalbreaker who shared this one with us. There's an international student from Germany who broke into the Australian Museum in Sydney and then took selfies next to the dinosaur exhibits. He was there about 40 minutes. Holy cow. <laughs> Apparently, he climbed up scaffolding to get in. Do you remember, Garrett? Because it's under construction. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of scaffolding everywhere. Nothing was damaged, but he did allegedly steal a piece of art and a staff's oh. cowboy hat. And he's been charged with breaking and entering. So and they like, caught him? Well, yeah, there were cameras everywhere. Yeah, when we went to the Australian Museum, we went when it was closed, but we reached out to them in advance and they agreed to let us in (laughs) and see some things and do an interview with us. They gave us a tour, yes. They did. It was great. But when we went there, I remember thinking this is like the most security I've had to go through to get into a museum. There was like a code fence and then there were multiple doors and we people needed badges to get into everywhere. Yeah. Well, we weren't willing to scale the walls. I guess, yeah. I guess even all that security... Australians that want to get in and see their dinosaurs, man. <laughs> well, he's an international student from Germany. Oh, okay. I guess the Germans. I made the wrong generalization. <laughs> I don't know that either one applies. <laughs> it doesn't really. <laughs> At first, I thought it was just the selfies, which seemed more like a, a funny goof. But if he's stealing stuff, that's not really not cool. Allegedly. True. Allegedly. And last, thanks to... All of our listeners who alerted us to this one, the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, the Megalosaurus, has been damaged with its nose and its mouth broken off. And the damage was alongside existing cracks, but the Met Police are investigating it as a heritage crime. The antlers on the Irish elk models are also damaged, but those could have been because of high winds. So for those who want to donate to Friends of Crystal Palace Dinosaurs and help restore and maintain these statues, we'll share a link. Yeah, that's a bummer. To me, looking at it, I could see how it could happen either way because it's like gravity would pull that off. It's kind of like the jaw if it fell off and it took a little bit of the nose with it. But you could also see how if someone was trying to climb it or something and they put their hands in the mouth and tried to lift themselves up, they could break it off that way. It was a bummer. That was the one that was in good shape because they had just gone through a whole restoration project. I'm surprised there were existing cracks, I guess. That's always the issue when you're restoring things. Mm -hmm. You don't want to just tear it all off and put on new stuff. So it's never... 100% back to good as new. Yeah. So I know a lot of people are disappointed. Hopefully they can fix it relatively soon. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see what the piece that broke off looked like, if it shattered into a million pieces or if it's just kind of like a single piece that fell off. Or, I mean, I suppose it could have been taken. Might be why they're investigating it. I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't find too many other details. I did see that they're investigating it just by default. Whenever anything like this gets damaged... Whether or not you suspect it was by an individual, they investigated just to be sure. Mm-hmm. 
But on to happier news after a quick ad break. We're going to talk to Steve Porpat and Adele Pentland about their new Alaphrasaurine. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now we're going to go on to our interview with Steve and Adele about their first ever alaphrosaurine bone, which was found in Australia. And alaphrosaurines, if you're not familiar, because we don't do a good job of explaining what they look like early in the interview, (laughs) alaphrosaurines are basically like, if you take a gallimimus and give it little tiny arms, that's more or less what an alaphrosaurine looks like. They're around in the late Jurassic through the Cretaceous, really skinny, probably not predators, probably quick runners. So yeah, basically the Jurassic Park version of a Gallimimus with smaller arms is how I would put it. We're joined this week by Dr. Steve Porapat from Swinburne University and a research associate at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum in Winton, Queensland, Australia, and also Adele Pentland, who's a PhD candidate also at Swinburne University and research associate at Australian Age of Dinosaurs as well. Thank you both for joining us this week. Very welcome. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks so much for having us back. You recently found a new dinosaur. How recently was this? Is this a loose end that's being tied up or is this a new find? You know, you'd really say it probably started five years ago with the discovery of this specimen. And it was found by a volunteer uh, working with Dinosaur Dreaming at the Eric the Red West site. So that site uh, is famous, of course, because it produced Deluvi Cursor, the ornithopod that was described in early 2018. That dinosaur was named after David Pickering, Deluvia Kirksaw Pickeringi, 
and he is actually the man who prepared this specimen that we've just recently described. He prepared it and he identified it as a neck vertebra straight off the bat. Uh, and then he tried to work out what type of animal it belonged to. And he went through, I think it was Velnhofer's Illustrated Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs and looked at Tapihara vertebrae and went, whoa, this is a really good match. And so when I was shown the vertebra back in 2015, I was told it was a Tapihara. I looked at it, looked at the pictures and went, yep, that's, that's a pretty good case. But then for whatever reason, no one published it. No one was working on it. And so when Adele's um, PhD began in 2017, and I basically was given free reign in the museum collections in here in Melbourne by Tom and Pat Rich, I thought, well, it would be only logical to include this as part of Adele's PhD. And so I put her on it, and I guess that's where she can pick up the story. Yeah, so I'd heard about this beautiful vertebrae in the museum collections, and very fortunate for us, they had already collected synchrotron data as well, uh, and that's where Joseph Babbitt sort of ties in with this paper. Yeah, I had made the description of Pharaoh Draco, uh, the pterosaur that we talked about last time I was on the podcast. Uh, I made that my focus. So I looked at this vertebrae actually a few times, and then it hit me. I'm like, this can't be a pterosaur vertebrae because <laughs> pterosaur cervical vertebrae are Procelis, without fail. There's nothing that bucks that trend uh, that I can see in the literature. So this vertebrae that was found in 2015, it's Amphocelis, and yet it's so bizarre and the processes are so unique. It, it really threw me. <laughs> yeah. Could you quickly tell us what Procelis and Amphocelis is? Because I don't know what those words mean. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Amphocelis means that both the articular facets on the centrum are concave, whereas Procelis vertebrae are concave at the front and convex at the back. Gotcha. So how did you get from, okay, you realize this is not a pterosaur bone, to a Laphrosaurinae? Well, um, Adele and I were both at the museum the day that she worked out that it wasn't from a pterosaur. And um, we happened to be sitting in the collections manager's office when she revealed this to me. And Dave Pickering had passed away in 2016, but all of his books had been donated to the museum and were in the collections manager's office, thanks to a kind donation by his partner. And as a result, uh, we were surrounded by wonderful textbooks on dinosaurs. And I thought, well, first port of call, let's check the dinosauria and see what is in there that might be you know, might resemble this vertebra. Because looking at the vertebra, it was very obvious to me that it couldn't be from a sauropod. Uh, it was obviously, you know, first and foremost, far too small, but all sauropod neck vertebrae are uh, epistheceles. So they have a socket behind and a ball in front. Mm. And ornithischian neck vertebrae, so ceratopsians, ornithopods, and chylosaurs, they look nothing like this vertebra at all. No, no, in very few cases are they ever anywhere near this elongate. And so the logical step was to go, okay, if it's not either of those two, but it's probably an archosaur, then it is almost certainly from a theropod. And so then we started flicking through the dinosauria. The theropod section happens to be the front. Saw coelophysis and went, oh, that's not terrible because it's obviously a long-necked theropod. 
But of course, that being a Triassic theropod, it was easy to sort of just go, yeah, there's no chance we've got one in the in the late early Cretaceous of Victoria. Mm-hmm. But then when we went got to the Ornithomimosauria chapter, we went, ooh, Gallimimus, that's a good match. You know, there was there was only one tentative uh, Ornithomimosaur record from the whole southern hemisphere, from the whole of Gondwana, and even it was contested. It could be some other kind of coelurosaur. So even though it looked very much like Gallimimus, this neck vertebra, we thought, mm, let's just make sure it's not something else first. And then, you know, having been a dinosaur geek or dinosaur nut since I was a little kid, <laughs> I had, you know, read books that were probably out of date even for their time that were saying that Elaphrosaurus was an ornithomimosaur. But I knew that that had been, you know, strongly questioned since the 1980s and then basically demonstrated to me untrue in the 1990s, all the similarities between Elaphrosaurus and Ornithomimosaurus being a result of convergence. So we thought, well, can't hurt to see what Elaphrosaurus looked like. It wasn't in the dinosauria, so we had to pull up a a recent publication. We pulled it up and we looked at the vertebrae and we went, goodness, it's almost as if our own one is staring us back in the face. It was just (laughs) so similar uh, in, in every single aspect of its shape, of its structure, you know, you could almost put our new vertebra in front of the Elaphrosaurus one on the screen and say, you know, there's no difference. And so then, of course, we wanted to make sure that we were really careful about any interpretation of this vertebra we made. And so we went through all the anatomical features that make an ornithomimosaur an ornithomimosaur, make an Elaphrosaur an Elaphrosaur, and it just fit perfectly with Elaphrosaurus and its close relative Limusaurus. And so we thought, well, my goodness, we have an Elaphrosaur and... It's the latest at that time because none of them had ever been described from the Cretaceous. It was the youngest ever found anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it didn't come out that way, as we might explain a little <laughs> bit later, but yeah, <laughs> it's certainly <laughs> the only record of the whole group from Australia, and it is one of the youngest uh, records of the whole group ever found. And I should say at this point that Adele and I, you know, we were sort of confident about this to a point but of course you know i, I mean i work, mostly work on sauropods adele mostly at this point works on pterosaurs we wanted to get at least one other theropod expert to, to have a look at this vertebra and it just so happened that with society of vertebrate paleontology meeting happening in brisbane a lot of researchers from uh, overseas were visiting australia and one of them happened to be matt carano who worked on a 2016 paper redescribing a laphrosaurus in detail <laughs> And he just happened to visit Melbourne before the conference. And the curator at Melbourne Museum, Eric Fitzgerald, said, so should I let Matt see this vertebra? And I said, absolutely, but don't tell him what we think it is. Let's see what he says, <laughs> you know, straight off the bat, double blind experiment or whatever. Um, and sure enough, when we met Matt at the conference, he's like, yeah, that's an elaphrosaur. I'm like, oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> so, yeah, Adele and I were absolutely stoked to hear that. And within a couple of months, we had the paper submitted and ready to go just about. But, yeah, then it got held up in review for a bit. It happens. It does. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. Just enough to, you know, make us have to review it because it was no longer the first record of a Cretaceous Elaphrosaurine dinosaur. Right, because of the one in Argentina that was published. Exactly. (laughs) Who and Coolsaurus pipped us to the post. (laughs) (laughs) But it does kind of help make the case for this group, right? And extending it by, what was it, more than 40 million years? Absolutely. That was was the beauty of it. And it turned, you know, even though it wasn't, at least as the publication record shows, the first one ever found in um, the Cretaceous, the fact that we've got them on 
you know, in both South America and Australia suggests that we should find them all over Gondwana in the Cretaceous mm. um, because, you know, they were living in Africa happily in the late Jurassic and then the record just, you know, dissipates. But now we've got, we've got a really solid reason to expect them in Cretaceous deposits, you know, across South America, Antarctica, Africa, who, know, who knows? Yeah. So a Laphrosaurus, that's a pretty... It's relatively small, right? Or is it just small in my oversizing of dinosaurs perspective? Uh, Elaphrosaurus itself, well, it's actually the biggest Elaphrosaurine that we know of, I think. Uh, Huincosaurus might be a little bit bigger, but um, from memory, it's not. Elaphrosaurus is about five to six meters long. So not not dissimilar in size to Australovenator, really, but it's much more gracile. It's a very lightly built animal. Australovenator would have been a bit more chunky. The one that we've recently described from Victoria was nowhere near that size. As an adult, it was, well, if the specimen we found belongs to an adult, it's probably no more than two meters long. And in that respect, it's actually closer in size to the nearest relatives of Elaphrosaurines, which are the Noasaurine Noasaurids, um, because all of the ones that we know of from that group are about two meters long and no larger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are pretty small then. Elaphrosaurs mm-hmm. in general, though, they're they're pretty weird as dinosaurs, right? Because they're theropods, but not carnivorous. Yeah. So um, the, the problem with the Elaphrosaurs, generally speaking, has been that a complete, you know, until the uh, early 2000s, it was a complete lack of skull material for these animals. The only known skeleton of Elaphrosaurus doesn't preserve a head. Huincosaurus is a few dorsal and sacral vertebrae, and that's about it. <laughs> Our one, obviously, is only one neck vertebrae, but the one that has sort of um, changed the game in that regard is Limusaurus from China, where you have more than a dozen individuals represented by nearly complete skeletons. And what they suggest is that, yeah, as adults at least, these animals were probably not predatory or not entirely predatory. As juveniles, though, they might well have been more or less entirely predatory because they the juveniles show evidence of having teeth lining their jaws, but the mm-hmm. adults don't have teeth at all and instead have a horny beak covering their mouths. I forgot about that super weirdo that loses teeth mm-hmm. as it grows up and turns into a beak. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, you know, the more fossils we find of them, the more, you know, the better we might be able to, to say that that's something that's characterizing all the Laphrosaurs and not just Limusaurus. But um, yeah, at the moment, I guess we would probably presume that all the Laphrosaurs did exactly the same thing that Limusaurus did uh, until we find evidence <laughs> to the contrary. That's so awesome. <laughs> Do you think the chances are pretty good that when you're able to go back to the dig site, you'd be able to find more of this dinosaur's bones? Oof, it's hard to say. So the particular site that we're digging at, Urk, the Red West, it's much like the other sites along the Victorian coast in that the deposits that we're digging up, they were massive river channels and they were fast flowing as well. So to find a vertebrae as complete as this one and intact as it is, yeah, it was really um, just incredible to find. Eric the Red West is a site that there have been a couple digs there. More recently, they found an accumulation of disarticulated remains from various groups, which has been imaginatively termed the block. 
<laughs> it's crazy to think that there's such a dense accumulation of bones because that's normally not what we find on the Victorian coast. So the block combined with this find, it sort of does give me hope that there might be more amazing finds to be made. But yeah, we um, we haven't been able to get back to the site so there had been plans to return to Eric the Red West uh, in February this year, and the bushfire season was, you know, pretty bad in Australia, in Victoria, mm-hmm. and the decision was made to postpone the dig, and then coronavirus happened. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not sure when we plan to get back to that site, but there are definitely going to be a lot of eager volunteers uh, hoping to find more material that would help us work out whether these dinosaurs are herbivorous or carnivorous, but we don't find a whole lot of skulls. Yeah. Yeah. So if you do find more fossils of this elaphrosaur, then I imagine it'll end up being a really strange dinosaur because not only is it coming from a group that's uh, got a lot of interesting characteristics, but also just the fact of when it lived and where it lived, that means it's, what was it, like near polar environments, and those are always interesting <laughs> animals. <laughs> yeah, I want to see huge eye sockets to get in as much light as possible. For those six months of darkness. I want to see the most bizarre Laphrosaur in A as I can. <laughs> 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 yeah, that would be pretty sweet to see it, you know, polar adapted. That'd be really cool. <laughs> I know one of our listeners pointed to the piece of paleo art that came out with this paper. Who made that art? That was Ruri Duncan. Oh, nice. He was my honors student last year. He's just really talented. Let's put it that way. He's um, not only a very good paleontologist in the making um, because he did a fantastic honours thesis on um, the ornithopod dinosaur skull material from Eric the Red West. But, yeah, he did that fantastic piece of paleo art as well. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a better example of an elaphrosaur in paleo art, I think, than than Ruri's um, illustration. It's just awesome. Yeah. And uh, there is also a hidden Easter egg in that. You might have seen Ruri's talk at Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting last year and uh, heard his, his fantastic Scottish accent. Uh, <laughs> he's hidden Nessie somewhere in that image, little cartoon Nessie. So if you've got a good high-res version of it, zoom in and have a look. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he uh, has used that instead of a signature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and bonus, bonus like Easter egg as well. As Steve mentioned, yes, he is Scottish. He's proudly Scottish, and he's actually made Nessie wear the tartan of his Scottish clan as well. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he's been <fair>, no expense. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> There's also some speculation by one of our listeners that it's spotted like Bambi because the species name of Elaphrosaurus is Bambergai. <laughs> You guys have any any thoughts on this theory? Oh no! Well, I wish that actually ties in really nicely. But no, honestly, um, Ruri was sort of asking me, you know, what what color should we make this thing? And I'm like, well, we've got no idea what color it was. But given that it's living in this, you know, near polar forest, maybe some kind of dappled coat like a young deer. And he took that idea and ran with it and came up with his own color scheme. But it, yeah, it does look like a, a young deer's um, sort of 
spots that help it blend in with the dappled light that comes through uh, the leaves mm-hmm. onto the forest floor. And, yeah, that would have been great if this animal was still hunting small reptiles or small mammals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, help it camouflage and sneak up on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because it's there's nothing now that lives in a polar environment that is like anything remotely like a, a typical land dwelling herbivore because you're just weirdos at the poles already right now because they have to deal with the crazy you know whatever it is negative 100 degree temperatures and all that kind of stuff and the ice but imagining like living just in darkness in an otherwise normal environment you really wonder what kind of adaptations those animals would have yeah i mean part of me wants to speculate that you know at least part of the year there might have been like cave dwelling fauna, um, you know, yeah. dealing with darkness by reducing their eyes. And oh. I, I really doubt that. The burrowing dinosaurs. <laughs> I'd love like to a find. Like oh. It's been suggested before. Mm. Yeah, 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 there are possible dinosaur burrows from the Victorian coast, but yeah, um, whether they were dug by ornithopods or elaphrosaurs, who knows? But certainly, elaphrosaurs didn't have the front limbs to um, to dig good burrows. I don't think. <laughs> Um, yeah, the stumpy little four-fingered uh, hands. Can but... you imagine? It's <laughs> another dinosaur that makes T-Rex looks like it has large arms. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and no, what I would love to see in Victoria, if, um, if we could find it, is like a dinosaur equivalent of a naked mole rat, you know, something, <laughs> something that's living in, in sort of uh, – use social communities with a queen and all that sort of thing, like modern-day bees and ants. But, yeah, <laughs> that'd be cool. That would be. Are there any projects that you guys are working on that you want to share that are upcoming where and where people can follow that work? So I still have work to finish on Butch or Farrah Draco. You can keep up to date with me on Twitter. I'm Adele Pentland. Whereas um, <laughs> I'm I'm swamped a little bit with projects that I'm trying to finish at the moment. <laughs> oh, poor baby! I know, right? <laughs> Such a bad problem. That, no, it's actually it's actually kind of nice. Yeah, I can't complain really. So I'm really hoping that the the full description of the anatomy of Savannosaurus eleatorum, aka Wade, mm-hmm. is going to be published soon uh, because it's gone through a review at the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. It's been awaiting a decision for about a month and. Uh, yeah, it'd be nice when that decision comes through and hopefully it's a positive one and we don't have to send it somewhere else. But it'll be nice because, you know, it's been about five years now since uh, Savannosaurus was named and it'd be good to have the, the full description out there. A full description is in the works on the specimen we announced at the same time, which is Alex, which had a brain case. It's a Diamantinosaurus. Mm-hmm. But yes, then otherwise, I guess there are a bunch of other sauropod projects on the go, which kind of need to remain secret for now. But Needless to say, I have a couple of specimens here at home, thankfully, which uh, you know have helped me get through isolation quite well. They've given me something to do, that's for sure. And so, yeah, my hope is that those papers will be submitted before the end of the year and we'll be able to announce even more cool sauropod material from Australia. Excellent. Do you have a social media handle that you want people to follow you on? Oh, unfortunately, no, I don't have Twitter anymore. I have a website, which is stephenporopat.weebly.com. And yeah, I'll normally post like links to popular articles or scientific articles up there. Haven't updated the media section of that for a while, but I'll get into it one day. <laughs> <laughs> Once you run out of dinosaur fossils to mm. keep you busy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which won't ever happen. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. 
Well, yeah, thank you so much for sharing it. There's so many cool dinosaurs coming out of Australia. Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's great to be part of it. Yeah, again, like, thanks for having us. Thanks again, Steve and Adele. Even though this was just a single bone, we learned so much from it. And it's a great example of how you never know what bone is going to be important to science. <laughs> oh, also, Garrett and I did find Nessie after we wrapped up talking to Steve and Adele. So if you spot her as well, let us know. <laughs> yeah, I posted a picture in the Discord and I said, can you find Nessie in this picture? And nobody really responded. I think they think I was joking. But now after hearing this, you know that it's in there. Oh, you gave no other context. Nope. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does sound like a joke that way. And I'll give a hint too is the Nessie is not in the water. It is somewhere else in the image. And it's very, very small. Yeah, we recommend zooming. Yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Calovasaurus. And this is a dinosaur that actually appeared in the book Jurassic Park. Huh, I don't remember that one. It replaces Microceratus or Microceratus in some editions of the first novel. Recently, I was going through the list of dinosaurs that we had covered, and we'd covered most dinosaurs that have been mentioned or a part of anything to do with Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, but this is one of the few that we missed, so decided to cover it. Cool. So, Calovasaurus was an iguanodontian that lived in the Middle Jurassic and what is now England in the Oxford Clay Formation, and it's known from a nearly complete left thigh bone, 0.92 feet or 28 centimeters long. That's a pretty good femur. Yeah. A partial tibia or chin bone was found nearby, and that may also be Calovasaurus. Calovasaurus is estimated to be 8.2 feet or 2.5 meters long, and it was an herbivore. The type species is Calovasaurus leedsi, and the genus name means Calovian lizard. Calovian is an age and stage in the Middle Jurassic, and the fossil was found in the Middle Calovian, so makes sense. Calovasaurus was described in 1889 by Richard Lidecker, who originally named it Camptosaurus leedsi, and the species name is in honor of the collector Alfred Nicholson Leeds. In 1980, Pierre Galton analyzed the fossil and then named it as a new genus, Calovasaurus. Some scientists thought that it was a dubious iguanodontian. The femur was found in a brick pit near Fletton, and the femur was originally complete, but now it's in three pieces that fit together. Oh no, somebody dropped it. <laughs> I think it's just been through a lot. Yeah, like that megalosaurus jaw too. <sighs> but a cast of the femur was made in 1888. In 1909, Gilmore said that Camptosaurus leedsi was similar to Camptosaurus, but, quote, 
if referable at all to an American genus, its closest affinities, as indicated by the femur, are with Dryosaurus, end quote. In 2006, Jose Ignacio Ruiz Omeñaca and others found it to be a valid genus and the oldest known Dryosaurid. So originally it was classified as Camptosauridae and now it's Dryosauridae. The femur is similar to Dryosaurus and Valdosaurus, and its closest relative, not surprisingly, is Dryosaurus. Other animals that lived around the same time and place as Calovasaurus included Ichthyosaurs, Plesiosaurs, Crocodiliforms, Pterosaurs, the sauropod Cetiosaurus, Stegosaurs, Loricatosaurus, and Lexovasaurus, and the Ankylosaur, Sarcolestes. So like I said, Calovasaurus replaces Microceratus in some editions of the first novel of Jurassic Park. It's also one of the dinosaur toys in Jurassic World Attack Pack. <laughs> I'm guessing it's on the getting attacked side of things and not the attacking side. Yeah, it definitely looks like one of the prey animals. Poor iguanodontians. Ooh, but you can shift it around to make it look like it's grazing. <laughs> For easier attacking. <laughs> <laughs> and our fun fact of the day is that dinosaurs aren't the only animals that go through pedomorphosis, meaning those adult animals with embryonic or juvenile traits. The classic example of pedomorphosis is domesticated dogs. So it's been known for a long time and considered valid that some dogs basically look like baby wolves. And therefore, through the breeding process, we've just raised a bunch of baby wolves into our pets <laughs> rather than adult wolves, which would have some traits we don't want as pets. However, some recent research showed that their skulls aren't really pedomorphic at all, but have a unique set of characteristics and geometries which are totally distinct from young wolves. So they're not really just young wolves, they're their own whole thing. But I think you could still argue that their smaller body size, at least with most dogs, would still be an example of pedomorphosis, because that's one of the most common things is the smaller size. A much better example, though, is in salamanders, because many different salamander families have a few species in them that have gills as adults instead of lungs or other ways of breathing that other close relatives have. So it appears to have evolved several times in different families back to this ancestral juvenile or embryonic phase because they kind of go through a tadpole-ish phase <laughs> where they have gills. More close to home is that humans are also pedomorphs. Compared to our closest ape relatives, we look more like their babies than their adults, which might be why we think baby chimpanzees are so cute and adult chimpanzees are kind of meh. <laughs> a few examples of our pedomorph traits are we have big brains and a skull that sort of matches, you know, big old foreheads and tops of heads. We have wider, mostly hairless faces. We have less of a brow ridge, kind of just an overall softer looking features and face. We have smaller jaws and jaw muscles, and we have lots of other proportions around our body, which are just kind of baby-like <laughs> compared to other apes. Obviously, these traits are really useful to us, but might be less useful for a chimpanzee. So something that we took advantage of. There's also an article in Nature from 2012 titled, quote, birds have pedomorphic dinosaur skulls, end quote. So <laughs> didn't have to go much farther than that to find out if birds have anything in common with baby dinosaurs. Some of the traits they listed included having big eyes, big brains, and a smaller overall snout, or basically their beak. And because of the fact that these are 
traits from pedomorphosis, that means that we can undo them by reactivating genes that are suppressed in previous adult development of you know earlier dinosaurs, and we can kind of undo some of these pedomorphic traits in the lab. We've talked about that before with the chickenosaurus, and we've successfully made birds which have been engineered to have teeth and with a snout rather than just a small beak, as well as more bird-like feet. But we still haven't achieved the dinosaur tail, turning that piga style into a tail. That's kind of the last piece, I think. And then maybe getting rid of feathers. If you want a featherless dinosaur, you could choose your own adventure on that one. If you want a nice fluffy chickenosaurus or you want a scaly chickenosaurus. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And consider joining our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day. Boom.